The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I will become thankful that as we sang already, you are the God who gives to us living water, give us life. And because of that, because that's you who gives that to us, our hope is secure in your hands. We have a, a resting place with you, in you, sheltered by you that is, that is good and safe. And so we say thank you for that. And from that spot then we look to you and say, will you please give us more? Will you teach us this morning all that it means or maybe some more of what it means to be yours, to be, to be kept by you and held by you, to be defined by you? Help us to, to understand something of your work on us and of our security with you. And then, as was prayed earlier, use that to move us out uh, boldly, confidently, securely. Teach us who we are, Lord. Use this passage towards that end, we pray. Thank you. Amen. This world that we live in is broken by sin. And in the middle of all that mess, we're here. Trying to make a life for ourselves of satisfaction with some delight and some pleasure, some joy, some, some goodness in it. But the problem is that we human beings also are broken by sin. We are sinful and fallen, blind in our understanding, and we've placed ourselves in charge of the restoration project, and it's not going very well. In a lot of ways, it's made things worse. That's where we are. That's what's been going on all around us, always, ever since Genesis chapter 3. When the first human beings, in their first step, moved away from God, from out from under his authority, out from his wise care, and instead decided to do what seemed good and wise and pleasurable in their own eyes. It's been that way all around us ever since. But that must not be how God's people, the church, is. We're not to be inclined to step away from God. We're not to be inclined to pursue whatever seems right in our own eyes and to make a life that suits us. That should not be and yet the danger that it would be always exists. And that brings us to the book of Jude. Jude is a short book, really just a, a one-page little letter with a simple point pressed home with emphatic energy. It is an earnest book. And probably in part because it is so at you, it kind of tends to be skipped over. There's, there's a lot of heat in this book. It comes to the point, and really it's at one point in this book, and it comes to it pretty quickly, Christians must, put it in all capital letters, must consider and contend for the one true faith that was given to us and not veer off into other things and other ideas. We've been delivered from and delivered to one true faith and false ideas and temptations are going to be all around us, rising up even inside of us, and we must resist them. Jude then, and Second Peter which follows it, which we'll look at next, 
they talk about, these books, this one included, talks about a threat and a danger that is within us, that is already among the camp. First Peter, which we just finished, talks more about the threat that the world comes at us bringing. So it's, it's more looking at the danger from outside, and now we kind of turn and look at the danger that is inside, the danger to walk away from God, a challenge that is put before us here in Jude and then in 2 Peter. We'll see it. We'll come to it pretty quickly. It's a short letter. But this week, we just begin with verses 1 and 2, and reading them, you wouldn't have any idea where we're going. Verses 1 and 2 are just a, a rather standard introduction to a letter, very similar to lots of other letters of that era. But like always in the New Testament, the introduction of the letters are kind of turned a little bit to, to kind of begin to position us for what's coming. Kind of, it, it, it begins and it kind of slants us and teaches us things that will be helpful very shortly. We're threatened, in danger, under a, a subtle kind of internal attack, clever, and Jude begins by reminding us, maybe ironically, but helpfully, about our security. We're, we're under threat, and he's going to talk first about how safe and secure and how good we have it. Not to lessen the need to resist the temptation, but to assure us of the success of our resistance. To give us a resting place, a solid, a solid spot to stand on. We can encourage us with hope here. This is verses 1 and 2 then, and I'm going to read them, and then I'll draw out two observations that are going to tell us who we are, who God's made us to be. And if you're a Christian, you look at that, and it should give you some a resting spot and a, and a reassurance and I think then a motivation to say no to what's tempting, what comes at us, to fight for the faith as we'll see in the following weeks. So this is, ver this is verses 1 and 2 of the book of Jude. I'll read it and then draw out two observations. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's the beginning. Two observations. Here's the first, and it's, it's significantly longer than the second one, but here it is. We have a precious identity created for us by God. We have a precious identity created for us by God. Identity is a very important concept. Maybe especially so today, but it's always been very important to know, to know who you are informs what proper and profitable living would look like for you what your responsibilities and, and privileges are, what, what your goals should be and the ways that you should get there. So to, to realize, to figure out who am I, and then understanding that, you know, then to be your true self, you know, to you be you, you know, that those kinds of phrases, those kinds of ideas that are very popular today, they're actually pretty important and pretty helpful. But of course, the gigantic and really the devastating problem of the world today when it comes to identity figuring out who you are and then being that, the, the big problem is that the world tells everyone to look inside of themselves 
It tells us to look inside of ourselves to figure out who you really are. Look inside of you, of you at your feelings, or at least your current feelings, or your strongest feelings, your most frequently recurring feelings, and your urges and your desires. Look at your behaviors and what you find natural to do. Look at your thoughts, what you constantly think about. Look at how you look or how you want to look and what makes you feel at ease and what feels natural to you and what, what comes easy. You look at all those things, look inside of you without ever any thought about are those things right or wrong or lasting. But look inside of you and what you figure out is in you, that's who you really are. Be that with gusto. At least right now. I mean, maybe it'll change next year. But be that. That's who you really are, at least at the moment. The idea is logically flawed and experientially hopeless. Anyone who's ever experienced life as a teenager should realize that self-perception's pretty fuzzy and fickle, fluid, really blown back and forth, changing by what the world around you says and how your peers treat you. Back and forth, you go like a flag in the wind. And that, that is not just teenagers, that's all people. But young people experience that most viciously. All of us do, though. All of us. Experientially, it's really, really hard to figure out who you are. And logically, it doesn't make any sense. Anybody who's ever done a science experiment knows that if you ever want to learn the truth about an item, to evaluate it, you need an outside reference point. Something outside of that item by which you can compare, a control. You can't ever tell how fast you're moving in a car by looking at your own hand or even the hand of the person sitting next to you. You need to look outside the car to see the stuff whipping by. That's, how you, that's the only way you can know. Look outside. Logically, this makes no sense, but that's where the world always points us. The wisdom of the world says, look inside of you and figure out who you are. It's tragically flawed. So identity is important, and kindly the God who is good does better for us than the world can do. We have to figure out who we really are and then be that if we want to live a profitable and proper life. If you want to live a life that's got blessing, and that's, that's good, that's just, appropriate, who are you? You've got to know. And God tells us from the outside, truth comes in. And it's an unchanging, it's a constant truth spoken from a constant source that no matter how hard the wind blows, this is the case. This is our identity defined from outside of us, created by the action of God upon us. Let's look at that in verse 1. Here's the author, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. There's a lot there. Jude or Judas or Judah, it's all the same name in different languages. Jude, being the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the biggest tribe, Judah, was an extremely common name in first century Israelite circles. In fact, two of Jesus' 12 disciples have this name. Judas Iscariot, 
with the Iscariot tacked on to clarify that he's not Judas, son of James, who was also called Thaddeus, to clarify that he's not the other one. There are two guys there with the same name, and neither one of them are our author. This is Jude, brother of James. And when he puts it like that, it becomes clear there's only one James who was so well known at that time in those circles that you could refer to him just by his first name and you could refer to him as brother. Usually your public identifying factor would be your father, but if you've got a really, really, really famous brother, like the head of the Jerusalem church who figures prominently in the book of Acts and who wrote the book of James, if you had a brother like that, famous like that, you would use him as your reference point. I'm brother of that James. This is Jude, brother of James. But what gets interesting then is this. Both Jude and James are the physical, biological half-brothers of Jesus. That's interesting. You can see them both in the lists of Jesus' brothers in Matthew 13 and Mark 6. This is Jude, brother of Jesus. Except that he doesn't say that. Instead, he writes what is for him and in similar ways for every Christian the first elemental defining element of our identity. It is not how he was born, but who God made him to be. My name is Jude, he says, and I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Literally a slave. That's the word used that's where our identity begins. Jesus has claimed me as his own to belong to him. I'm owned by Jesus. In Jude's particular sense, this language, servant of the Lord, it has a very Old Testament ring to it. We've, we've often talked about in past sermon series on different books of the Bible, the idea of minister with a capital M or minister with a lowercase m, the, the official minister with a capital M. This, this kind of sounds like that. Jude is in particular a minister with a capital M, claimed by God to serve the Lord. That's why he's writing what is to be a book of the Bible. He's, he's a servant in that sense, capital M. He set him apart to be a minister. But in a very real way, the rest of the New Testament is completely clear. Every Christian, every single one of us, we are all slaves of Christ. Language is used very often. We're all servants of his, ministers with a lowercase m, if you will. It is very important to get this straight. Right out of the gate, this is important, especially because as we're going to see, one of the, the core problems Jude is going to address is the idea circulating in the church, I'm sure circulating among us because they, like us, we are people. One of the core problems he's going to address is this idea that we can be our own authorities. 
and set up our own truth and our own standards and pursue our own goals in our own ways by our own means. Not if you're a servant of Christ, you can't. You're owned. We call him Master, Lord. We're under orders. So step one of understanding who we are is to understand that we are claimed. That's the beginning right there. Every single one of us, if you're a Christian, you're a servant, you're a slave of Jesus. And that clarifies a ton right there. And if that sounds, and it should, and if that sounds firm and a a bit stern, what follows then is, I think, sweet and the perfect balance of this. Because right at the gate, we've got to get clear, I'm a servant of a Lord. And then what follows is, and that is a sweet thing. The second sentence of verse 1 tells us more. We are called. Jude is writing to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Three phrases there form really the heart of what our identity is, our God-given identity. One of them is the lead phrase, the called ones. Grammatically, that's That's the dominant word. Beloved and kept then flow from that word and are true because of that word. We who are followers and servants of Jesus, Christians, we are those that God has called. And he hasn't called everyone in the same sense. This is unique for Christians. There is a sense in which God calls everyone. When the gospel is preached, it's proclaimed, it just goes out indiscriminately, universally to everybody, and it's it's out there, and the call is, come to Jesus. That's a universal call. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a calling that results specifically in a person becoming what what we call a Christian. It's a subset. Which, as you think about it, or perhaps if you think through... Paul's writing in Romans 8 where he's got this this cascade of words that describe our salvation experience. If you think about this, this is the acting out, this calling is the acting out of the doctrine of election. Like Paul writes in Romans 8, predestined and called. There's an order there. We talked about election a number of times back in 1 Peter because Peter brings it up often. He called Christians there God's elect the ones God chose or elected, not because of anything we had done or not because of anything we would do. He, in eternity past, by his choice, chose. And there's a lot more we could say about that. We already did discuss a lot of that. If you are interested or intrigued or puzzled, I would encourage you to go back online and listen to the relevant verses from First Peter. It's all on the internet, on our website. But that's election. Happened in eternity past. But then... In time and in space, God enacts that. God acts out that election by calling. Calling his elect. The good shepherd calls his sheep. And his sheep, because they are his sheep, hear his voice. And when he calls, they say, I know that voice. And they come. 
They're his called ones. Christians are God's called ones. Christian, you are a called one. Which is to say that you are a member of his family by his deliberate choice as part of his big plan. All of you, the good, bad, and the ugly, all of you, he knew and called you anyway. You are an object of God's good work that he's been after, he's been in pursuit of from eternity past. How can you tell that? Well, you've come. You're here. That's how you can tell. You've, you've come to him. And if you wonder, if you're sitting here thinking, is that me? Could that be me? Well, come. And then you will find that, yep, it was. Because I came. I was called because I came. You don't think too hard about this. I mean, you can think really hard about this, and you can write lots of books about this. But on the other hand, you don't have to think too hard. The called ones come. If you've come, you've been called. Come. But Christian, you, you are one of these people. When you realize that, what, you, what you're looking at is, I've been called, I'm one of God's dependent people, I'm an object of his good work. He's been after me, he's known me, he's seen me, and that's why he called me. And that means two more things for you. Beloved in God the Father. Beloved maybe sounds like a little bit of a churchy word. All that it means is in the state of being loved. You be loved. Constantly loved. That's what he's saying. And he says it here almost in a redundant way. It's, it's constantly loved by God, that is, in God the Father. You are loved by God in God. What does that mean? Well, we spent a lot of time over the last number of weeks in, in 1 Peter. We saw often there this language of in Christ. We've seen it a bunch of times. The idea of being united, included in Christ. And Peter and Paul use that language a lot. But other biblical writers like Jude and especially the Apostle John, they tend to more say things like in God, abide in God. They all mean essentially the same thing. That we exist in intimate connection with God, in union with him. We Christians are not forgiven of our sin and then left off by ourselves. We are forgiven, and then because the barrier that was between us has been removed, we are forgiven and then brought near. It's like his, like his arm is, is put around you and you are brought right up close and near. It's, it's the difference maybe between if you had a, a father who you were really really uh, on great terms with and, and really appreciated and enjoyed, but you lived here and he lived in Massachusetts, that would be one thing. But if he lived right here, right next to you, if you lived in the same house and you kind of had this relationship, you'd experience him differently. We are in God loved. Up close loved. Tight with him. 
And it's not that the tight with him is, is a restriction or the tight with him is like a, like a headlock where you can kind of feel the pressure of it. The, the tight with him is an embrace that is sweet and good. In him we are loved. You are constantly loved. You don't need to chase the acceptance or the approval of God. You have it. You don't need to chase the acceptance or the approval of the world. You have the love of God. He loves you and he won't let you go. You are beloved and kept for Jesus Christ. We called ones are also ever and always being kept, preserved, guarded through every threat. Not necessarily from every threat, through every threat. Kept through it, guarded. God the Father keeps us, guards us, spiritually speaking, through every threat. Now, it is true that we have a part to play in this keeping. We will talk more about that. It becomes a significant point in this letter. There is a, a part that we have to play, but the focus here now, and really most often, is on how God does the keeping. All credit is due to him. In a way, it's, it's like saying, in a storm, I am kept from getting wet by means of a raincoat. I'm kept from wet, for dry, by a raincoat. I had a role to play in that. I bought the raincoat, I brought the raincoat, and I put it on. But nobody praises me for that. We all talk about the features of the raincoat. We talk about how it's, its seams are double sealed and, and it's got a great hood that covers you up. You, you, you praise the raincoat, not the guy who bought it or who had a good sense to put it on. The coat keeps me. God keeps us. That's the focus, always. God does what's needed. He keeps, which means, Christian, that his eye is on you. And more than just like a passive raincoat that just exists there, he, his eye is on you and his power is at work. He is actively engaged to seek out the threats against you and guard you against them. He's wise and strong and ever alert. And so in, in his arms, with his arm wrapped around you, you not only love, but you are kept safe. Under his wings, you are safely sheltered. In his hands, you are secure. You are kept from every fatal spiritual threat that may come at you. You're kept from that, kept for Christ. There's a God-determined destination for you. Christian, you are kept for Jesus, for faithfulness to him. We're not here just charting all of our own destinies. We are kept for faithfulness to Christ. You belong to him. He's coming to get you one day. You're being safely guarded for that so they can have what is rightly his, that which he purchased with his own blood, which has been promised to him, you. which is the best thing for you. 
It is very much like an engaged bride being kept safe for her husband. It's the husband's blessing and the bride's blessing both that she would be kept for him. He is working to keep you. You are kept one. That's who you are. That's whose you are even. So Christian, your identity then is this. A servant. A slave. Owned. By God the Son, you are His for His purposes. And you are a called one. Known by, chosen by God from eternity past, and then now called to come to him, dependent on him and his atoning death and saving resurrection and empowering spirit. You've been brought near to God. And in his arms you are constantly, perpetually, always loved with a wide, long, high, deep, good, effective, sweet, beautiful, kind affection. You are loved and guarded. You are his treasured possession and he is jealously guarding you, keeping you safe and secure from all threat and all harm until Christ comes to claim you. Servant, called, loved, kept. That's you. That's us. Terms all taken from the Old Testament to describe the people of God in the Old Testament. They describe us perfectly. That's what must describe you in your own mind. That must be how you understand yourself and gladly receive that definition, that identity, and lean into it and rest in it and trust it. Do you? It's an identity from outside of us, given to us by God's action on us. You have to receive that and lean into it and rest in it. I am Christ's servant. Is this the narrative in your mind? Wherever you go and however you go, I am Christ's servant. I am not a free agent doing whatever I please. I am called to him, part of his plan. I am not left alone. I am not abandoned. My life isn't random. I'm beloved. I'm not afflicted and forgotten and disliked and constrained. I am kept secure. I'm not left to the the whim of chance and the enemy of my soul. Is that what you tell yourself about yourself? Do you hold that up and use that to resist what everybody else is going to tell you about yourself? That's who you are. Certainly we have other tags and other descriptors that get put on us and you know, you got a physical descriptor. You look like this and that and the other. And relationally, you have connections and responsibilities to other people, yes. And you have professions and jobs and titles and missions. 
All of those in some way define us, and all of those are good and legitimate identities also, as long as they sit beneath and are not allowed to contradict or supersede your defining identity, your core, the real you, what God has said you are. If so, if they sit beneath and they're not allowed to contradict or supersede, then those all become other ways that you live out this you, that you live with God and for God in God's world to do good to people, to bless. Those are all then appropriate things to embrace as long as you get them right and sit them beneath who God has said you are. That then is how you are to live and how you are to experience God's blessing by embracing that's me, that's who I am. How you're to live and experience God's blessing. That leads us to the second observation. Before I go there, though, I want to just say about this, I kind of feel like this is a point, as I'm preaching this, I kind of feel like this is a point where it's possible that I'm getting a lot of easy yes, 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 but what about, yeah, I mean, get onto something I don't already know. No, stop there. I bet you most of us don't believe this. This is what God has said of us. And most of us believe it up here and then open the gates and say to the world, who am I and how should I be? Grab hold of, I'm a servant of his. I'm called by him, I'm loved by him, I'm kept by him. That's me. Grab hold of that, Christian. That's the way we are to put, that's the identity we put over everything else that's beneath us. And that's the way we find blessing. So I'll move on, but I want to exhort you again. Really, identity is critical, and that's who you are. It's who God says you are. So here's the second observation, and it's, it's much shorter. As we embrace our true selves, the life of blessing flows. As we embrace our true selves, the life of blessing flows. So the first part of that, we embrace our true selves. That's the first point I was just talking about. What we see here that is that verse 2 is written to those people of verse 1. May this be the case for you. It's a statement of, of blessing that is you know, what Jude would hope for us, which in the Bible's language is this is what's true of you. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, you who are the servants called, beloved, and kept. So obviously we just need to be clear about something here. We can't say, I'm going to reject the authority of Jesus over me. I'm going to walk away from God and still presumptuously assume that he's going to pour his multiplied blessings out of me. Mercy, peace, and love. Can't say that. It's mercy, peace, and love multiplied to you, this identity. There's got to be an alignment there. 
When we walk away from God, we who are truly his, what we experience is discipline, not blessing. That true discipline is a blessing in ways, but what he's talking about here is designed to be something that is encouraging and enticing. Here's where God showers his blessing on those who embrace this calling. And sometimes we need this kind of reassurance and enticement, like a verse 2 lure, because sometimes, check yourself if this is not true, Sometimes within us, something thinks, maybe quietly at first, maybe, maybe a little more loudly as the, as the lures draw us on, something in us thinks, you know what? Those who embrace God's identity get screwed. Ask yourself if that's not sometimes true of you. That you kind of think like that. Those who embrace God's identity find themselves heading down a path where what gets poured onto us is restriction and constraint and bondage and boredom and pain and loss. The only way you find blessing, the only way you can find some enjoyment in life is, is to look inside of you and figure out what feels good and then do that. That's among us. Jude's going to alert us to that. I doubt that any of us would officially say, that's a viable form of life. I get that. I, I can go for that. But what I'm trying to say and what Jude is trying to say is that sometimes we actually end up living that out. I'm pursuing this path. I'm trying to embrace what God says about me. I'm, I'm trying to, yeah, I hear that. But what just comes is just restriction and constraint and pain and loss. And everybody else is like Psalm 73. Everybody else is just having a happy-go-lucky time. What's the deal? I think I'm going to. And we're drawn off. Ever since the Garden of Eden, that's been the game. That's been Satan's game plan from day three, the third page of the Bible, to convince us that embracing God's plan for us is bad for us. That's the whole game. And we are naive to think that we are never tempted. And so sometimes what we need is something like verse 2 where, where God tells us otherwise. No, 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 no. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. You, verse 1, you. That's the life of blessing. Not material blessing. There is no promise here of health, houses, and money. There is mercy and peace and love. That's the real goods that we really want and we think we're going to find in the other stuff, but it's not there. Mercy to cover over our many, many, many shortcomings and failures and sins. This is the God of mercy who does not demand perfection, not because he doesn't care, but because he knows we can't produce it. 
And so He does not crush us in our failing. He crushed His own Son instead. He crucified Christ to pay for our sin and to cover all of our shortage so that He can be and then is gentle and merciful towards us. We little people, weak as we are, Mercy is one of those words that often sounds good but doesn't have a lot of bite in it until you feel the need. Have you lived in the spot of being a complete wreck? Not necessarily at other people's cause, but but you've done it to yourself. You've made mistakes that have fallen down you. You've committed sins that have been atrocious. You've hurt other people, and you feel like, ah! I would love to say that's not me, but the evidence says that's me. In that spot, mercy is a sweet word. We can convince ourselves sometimes on the outside that we can perform or shape shift to be, to be pleasing to others, but inside we know I'm empty and I'm hollow and there's nothing here. And then mercy from God is a sweet word. He gives mercy and he gives peace. Between us and him, that's... That's the core of it all, always. That in the gospel, what happened is that God removed off of us all condemnation. He put it on Christ's cross and gives to us instead forgiveness and we are at peace with God. There is no alienation. There is no condemnation. There is no hostility. You know this, but how sweet is that? There's peace between us and God and then between us and one another as we are in this family, his arms wrapped around all of us together. We can live in and know a family and a community of peace. We've talked about these words, mercy and especially peace, recently, frequently. But what's a bit unusual here in a letter opening like this is the last word, love. Multiplied love. That can't mean that God's love increases. His love is already perfect and full. It is constant. He, he has a full love for us. He loves us like he loves his son, and he cannot love us more, and he cannot love us less. So God's love can't multiply, can't grow, which leads then some people to think that he's talking about love just between people in the church. I'm sure that's true also, but that's not, I think, the main point here. I think what Jude is getting at is the multiplied experiencing. I want you to experience multiplied love from God for you. And if you think about that, that is something that you have experienced. If you're a Christian, you've had the experience of being freshly touched by the love of God. In some way, it's marked you or at some moment melted you or encouraged you, not because he came to love you more in that moment, but because you came to understand more of his love for you. 
in that moment. You felt more loved. That's what verse 2 is getting at. And in a way, we could kind of use this as like a little four-letter word that kind of goes like... Verse 2 wants us to help it wants to help us like experience God's love for us a little more. Like, oh, that's actually, you know, as you think about it, that's God's goal for us, his people. In all of eternity and in this life right now, the goal of God, even in the short introduction then, is to, is to get us in touch with something that is his big picture goal. To clarify for us our identity and our standing before him. Another way of putting that is to clarify that you are rooted in, that who you are is the apple of my eye. You don't understand what that means. What that means is I love you. No, no, no. I love you. No. I love you. How can I say this to you? I want to multiply that. I love wide and long and high and deep. As far as you can imagine. As high as you can reach. I love you. Mine. To clarify our identity is to clarify that we are a people beloved, in his arm grabbed close, kept from all threat, called to himself, loved. How can I say that? To grow in the experience of the love of God for you is God's goal for you. Because that love draws you to him. We are made that way. He made us that way, to be drawn to love. You are drawn to who loves you. And God wants to say, ain't nobody here loves you like I love you. It just so happens that Valentine's Day is coming up tomorrow. Nobody you're going to talk to loves you like he does. And if there's not anybody going to talk to you tomorrow on Valentine's Day, who cares? You are loved. <laughs> Let's get real about that. Let's get real about that. This is love. That God knew you and called you and sent his son to die for you, to claim you to himself, to draw you into his arm, to love you and keep you, to take you into eternity. That's a love that draws you to him, that leads you to worship him in thankfulness and then makes you like him. Merciful and peaceable lovers because he first loved us. That's what God's up to. This is who you are, and this is what your experience of life is to be. You won't find that looking in here. You'll find that looking at him and at what he has done for you. This is what God has done and what God wants us to experience, this is you, Christian, and this is your life 
a servant called love kept experiencing multiplied mercy and peace and especially the love of God for you in Christ. You've got to believe that and you've got to stand on it. You've got to sit under it and soak in it. Because we live in a world that's going to incline us otherwise. Verse 3 and following in the book of Jude. But we start in verses 1 and 2 with your identity. Let me pray. God Almighty, help us to know Strengthen us to know. Give us power to know your love for us. Paul prayed that in Ephesians 4 because we cannot know it without, without your power revealing it to us and pressing it into us. Help us to know this. Lord, you are good. Thank you for making us yours and telling us that. Help us to believe it and walk in it. Happy, thankful, at peace, in love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.